Well, let me ask, I want to start this morning with a question, and that question is, what is the purpose of a sermon? Is it to entertain? Is it to make a political statement? Is it to make people feel better? Is it to teach information? If it is to teach, to make us feel better, to communicate a political statement, or even to entertain, is the sermon's purpose only to be for the moment? Or should the content of the sermon carry lasting weight and catch this responsibility in the hearer's life? Is there such a thing as truth? And can it be communicated perfectly? Is it the purpose of a sermon to communicate that truth? Or is preaching a sermon only to gather a crowd, making the preacher and his church really popular? (laughs) What is the purpose of a sermon? Well, friends, for both you and I, answering that question sets the course, even this morning, of our entire lives, and no doubt, the course of our eternal lives. As we continue our Lord's Day service today, the attitude with which we come together directly affects the response to the sermon, and and by and large, how we respond is is really how well we listened, and that attitude shows up, and that, did I just come to do, or or did I, uh, uh, and check off a box, or or did I come to learn and, and hear the Lord, and what He has spoken? It is our understanding that the purpose of a sermon is for a preacher to both proclaim that which God has said and for us to have an attitude of obedience toward that which God has said. Every sermon that prioritizes God's word, whether that's in here or somewhere else, contains the power for a changed life, both in the right now and for eternity. In effect, when coming to church and listening to a sermon transitions uh, from being something, a taskmaster, uh, a mom or a dad or a pastor or some expectation tells us to, to coming as an extension of a living relationship with the Lord himself, eternities will change. Eternities will change. We might ask ourselves, what are our expectations today? To simply check the box next to obedient to the master? Or a living, convicting walk with the king of the universe, Jesus, who changes our lives? Believe it or not, each of us fits into one of those two categories today. If you're visiting Capital City Church this morning, you are joining us as we preached through the life of Christ as it is presented in all four Gospels. It's a little bit different for us. We usually have a book, and we just walk through that book line by line, and and we are now walking through the life of Christ line by line. Many of you will know that that different Gospel writers cover different things in, in, in the life and the chronology of Christ, and it is our desire to walk through and study that well. Amen? We started this quest of studying the life of our Savior on Christmas Day of last year when we taught a series and started this series titled, The Word Became Flesh. After studying the boyhood years of Jesus and his family, we studied the monumental figure of John the Baptizer. Jesus' baptism and temptation in the first year of Jesus' ministry recorded only in the Gospel of John. That was such a blessing to me to put all that together. I hope it was a blessing to you. In this series, the gospel writers Matthew and Mark both uh, recorded Jesus, uh, this series of the Galilean light. 
that we're in now. The gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, both recorded Jesus inviting Andrew, Peter, James, and John, remember, to become fishers of men. And we understood at that time they were not fishers of men at the time, but uh, he, Jesus walks by and he sees them casting their nets, you'll remember, and he says, I will, future tense, make you, right, fishers of men. Immediately after that invitation, they followed Jesus to a synagogue where he preached a sermon in Capernaum, cast out a demon, remember, and healed Peter's mother-in-law and the rest of the town, it says, that whole evening, right? The Sabbath day ended and the town showed up. Everything from hangnails to ALS, right? Whoever came in, the Bible says Jesus healed them. Every one of them. You'll hear, uh, if you were here, you'll remember that after that long night of healing ministry, Jesus secluded himself to pray and then took those four faithful followers on a preaching tour, remember, through Galilee, where they would learn to become fishers of men. I have a picture up here of Galilee. I hope that you can kind of see this well, and uh, uh, the reason I have it up here is because At the end there of Luke chapter 4, and we studied specifically out of Mark 1, um, they went on this preaching tour of Galilee. And although the text does not tell us how many cities they went to or how long they were gone, a map of first century Galilee that I'm showing you here shows 14 major towns. That doesn't have anything to do with the minor ones. And it helps us to understand that it took more than a day or two to preach in the synagogues and cast out the demons that Mark 139 describes, right? It's going to take a bit to get to each one of these little blue stars and each one of these dots. And refamiliarize yourself up there on the Sea of Galilee at the top. There's a little flag, and that's the city of Capernaum. And this event that we're reading about today is happening just south of that, not too far from Capernaum. The end of Luke 4 parallels Mark's account of the preaching tour where he was doing, uh, as he promised the disciples, making them fishers of men. This brings us to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 which is the next event in the ministry of the life of Christ. Andrew, Peter, James, and John were no doubt just like you and me, and they had to return to work and provide for their families. How many of you have ever taken a month off or a month and a half? You might be feeling a little pressured, right, to get home and get some work done and make sure you can put some groceries in the refrigerator. I don't think they had refrigerators. Just waking you up in case you fell asleep. However long they were on that preaching tour of Jesus, we don't know. But Luke 5 records them as being back at work, commercially fishing, attempting, right, to provide for themselves and their families. And where Matthew and Mark reported Jesus as making a promise to make the four fishermen fishers of men, today we will observe Jesus saying, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. And every fisherman knows there is a very distinct difference between fishing and catching. Amen? We tend to remember the catching trips that we went fishing on, don't we? (laughs) Effectively, beloved, today's text teaches that Christ calls, that Christ reveals himself, and Christ provides for his own as he moves from master to 
Lord in his disciples' lives. Let's take a look at the situation, verses 1 through uh, 11 here in, in Luke 5, 1 through 11. First, as I noted, and we studied several weeks ago, it is Christ who called these disciples to himself. Some students of Scripture believe that the events that we are studying today in Luke 5, 1 through 11 happened while Jesus called the disciples to become fishers of men in Matthew 4 and Mark 1. However, as we dig into the calling found in Matthew and Mark, there are several distinct differences uh, uh, in the accounts. None, none the least is, is this massive catch of fish which, which fills and sinks. You know how hard it is to sink a boat, <laughs> Right? These boats that are 20 to 30 foot long, two of them, right? That's a lot of fish. In addition, one commentator noted, as we'll see here in a moment, the Lucan account records Jesus teaching a large crowd that is pressing in on him, whereas the earlier calling to the disciples to become fishers of men simply says that Jesus was passing by. Also, Matthew and Mark's recording of the calling to become fishers of men was while Andrew and Simon, remember, they were casting their nets. Uh, whereas in our account in Luke 5, today Jesus tells them to cast their nets. And finally, in Matthew and Mark's Gospels, the focus to become fishers of men was extended to all four disciples, whereas today the Lucan account assumes that Simon uh, has graduated the training to become a fisherman when Jesus says to him, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. Regardless of whether you think that events are together or whether they're separated, what is clear is that Jesus is the one who calls potential disciples. He is the one who chooses those who will serve. Amen? You'll remember that when Jesus taught the parable of the wedding feast, he summarized his call to follow him by saying this in Matthew twenty-two fourteen: For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called and few are chosen. If you're in here with us this morning, you are either being called, because you are here, to become a disciple of Jesus, or you have been called and chosen, being born again, and you are in the discipleship process. One of the two. So it is, beloved, that Christ is the one who calls. Let's watch how this reality of Christ calling to people to eternity plays out. Luke 5.1 says, Now it happened while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. I don't want you to be confused, and I know you're, if you're familiar with your Bibles that, that the, uh, the Sea of Galilee is often called the Lake of Gennesaret, and it's actually a region just south uh, of Capernaum. Uh, but here Luke uses it as a synonym for the Sea of Galilee. And the impression that we get from the word pressing up there as they are pressing around him is that people are pressed up against Jesus and he had nowhere to go as the lake likely is on his backside and the people are pressing him from the front side. So if the lake is out there and people are pressing and pressing and pressing, this idea is there pressured up against him. And I couldn't help but wonder at that time uh, how many people were trying to kill Jesus and how many people were maybe trying to hear from Jesus. We know that when he was in his hometown at, at, at Nazareth, they pressed him up, up to the edge of a cliff, right, to throw him off. Anyway, some no doubt hating him, desiring him to be gone, others wanting to hear him, others no doubt wanting to be healed, to just touch the hem of his garment. 
What a wild scene. Much different than passing along and calling the disciples. So verse 2 says that he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. Now, as I usually do and I try to do throughout this series, I want to pause and point out what Jesus is doing in this scene. So often our attention as we read the Gospels gets drawn to the miraculous, and and rightfully so. It's the miraculous that points to the deity of Christ, to the authority of Christ. The miraculous affirms that's that's what Jesus is teaching. But we too often blow by words like, He was teaching the people. They were coming to listen to him. They were coming to learn from him. They were not sleeping through the sermon, I don't think. They were pressing against him. Last time we encountered Jesus, you'll remember, in and around Capernaum, where he is now, he had healed hundreds, if not thousands, and the disciples and the crowds were hunting, the word was there, if you'll remember, or searching desperately after him. But remember, and you can take a look right up above this in your verses in, uh, of your Bible, that Luke 4.43 told them, and rather than spend all my time healing all these people, which he could certainly have done, right, and was doing, he says this, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. It gives us the primary idea, right? Jesus is here to preach the kingdom of God so that people's eternity would change from hell to heaven, And he's preaching such a ridiculous message, we're going to get into that here in just a second, that the miracles have to affirm that that which he is saying is true. I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Beloved, I don't want us to miss the fact that Jesus' primary duty is to teach. It is Jesus' teaching that is calling people into the eternal kingdom of God. And this is what he is doing here while the people are pressing him. And let's remember a couple things about the Jewish people of Jesus' day. First, the Jewish people listening to these messages believed that they would in fact enter the eternal kingdom of God simply because they were Jewish. But Jesus is likely teaching them. We, wouldn't you love to know exactly what he was teaching? <laughs> but I'm going to say that he's likely uh, teaching these folks, just like he taught Nicodemus, that a person must be born again in order to inherit the kingdom of God. In effect, no Jewishness, and for that matter, no Christian confirmation, no Christian baptism, no, no church affiliation, no church attendance will get a person into the eternal kingdom. Jesus said to the religious elites of Jesus' day who had memorized the Scripture, who had grown up in church, so to say, who were committed to God, who, 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 who made every sacrifice, he says to those people in John 3, 3, truly, truly, listen, those two, those two words in the Greek are, are to get our attention, <laughs> It's verily, verily in some of your translations. In other words, pay attention. Your baptism, your confirmation, your church attendance, your understanding of God is not going to get you into heaven. 
I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot. So friends, Jesus' primary duty is to call out to a very religious people and tell them that their religion will not save them. And that uh, fact is undoubtedly rocking their worlds and some no doubt want to kill him and others just want to hear from him and others want to be healed, but they are pressing in to listen to this message. Secondly, as it pertains to Jesus' teaching, the Jews not only believe that they would be saved because of their ethnicity, but they also believe that they would be saved because of their good deeds. Their good deeds. This horrific deception, and I don't say that lightly, this horrific deception leads millions, even today, into the pit of hell at the point of their death, thinking that God is going to give them a pass because they've done a few more good things than bad. I fear, beloved, that ask the Ask the Christian you meet on the street why they're going to go to heaven, and my guess is, by and large, they're going to say something like that to you. Well, I think I've done a few more good things than bad. There could not be a greater lie from the pit of hell than that. Sounds nice. I wish it were true. There would be a lot more people in heaven if it were. However, Jesus, in his most lengthy sermon recorded in the Gospels, said that a person has to be as perfectly holy as God is holy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Pause for just a second. You've got to be holy as God is holy if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is the requirement. That is your movie ticket. No ticket, no getting in. Now, since you're in here, raise your hand if you are perfectly holy. No takers? (laughs) Oh, I saw a hand just for a second. It was just moving the hair. That's good. (laughs) I do that sometimes too. Friends, since perfection is the requirement for heaven, we, just like all these Jews pressing in to hear the call of Jesus, are condemned to hell. Our ethnicity doesn't matter. Our church confirmation doesn't matter. Our church attendance doesn't matter. Our church giving doesn't matter. None of it matters, lest you are born again. You might be saying to yourself, Pastor Carl, is there any good news? And the answer, of course, is yes. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53, verse 10, that it pleased the Lord to crush the son. Is that ever, you ever just paused on that? We'll get to this verse here in just a second, five and six, but you ever just paused and just pondered? It pleased God the Father to crush his son. And why? 
In that same chapter, in these verses before you, in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, Isaiah pointed to, Jesus, uh, pointed to Jesus in the future and wrote, but he, Jesus, was pierced through for our transgressions. Notice, the, notice the, 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 the payment here. He was pierced for our sin, right? He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell on him, And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Most of us who don't know the Lord well or or didn't listen well to the sermons in church think we're going to go to heaven because we did a few more good things. But, But that is not what the text says, right? Each of us has gone astray. All of us have 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 turned away to his own way. But the Lord, listen here, has caused the iniquity of us all. Notice all the alls? (laughs) You're all sinners. But I'm going to cause all of your sin to do what? To fall on him. To fall on him. No church attendance. No confirmation. No baptism. No communion. It's not going to save you. God must cause Jesus' perfection to fall on you. And he said you would be born again. Friends, Jesus' primary task was to call people to turn away from their sin and to put their faith in his coming work on the cross. It is the cross where he would bear God's wrath, being pierced, being crushed, being chastised for all who would believe. It is in light of our imperfections, our sin, that those familiar words from John 3.16 mean so much to us, right? For God so loved the world. Why did he crush his son? Because God loved the world. That whoever would believe would not perish in hell, right? But attain to eternal life. Believe in what, you ask? That we are sinners, (laughs) That we need to turn from our sin and believe that Christ, who was perfect, took our punishment on the cross. You see, dear friend, being born in a church or going through a confirmation will, uh, will uh, not save you. It pleased the Father to crush Jesus. It pleased Him. So that sinners like you and me could inherit eternity with the Lord. Now that is love. That is love. Amen. So we've seen Jesus calling his disciples to follow him, and and also many are pressing in on him. And now the focus shifts to Jesus revealing himself to Peter, who goes from calling Jesus to master, from declaring him to be Lord. Take a look at verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Let down your nets for a catch. (laughs) Well, if you know me, you'll know that not last week, but the week prior to that, I had the privilege of taking a little bit of time and spending with my wife, and we went over to the North Platte River and, and spent some time and and we did some fishing, and you'll know that going fly fishing is one of my favorite things to do, although I don't get to do it too much anymore. And uh, a friend of mine, just two Mondays ago, uh, we took an opportunity to take his raft on the North Platte River. I was so excited for a day of fishing. The anticipation was 
high. We even went into a place that I had thought about probably for 20 years and, and just had never made the effort to do it, and I was so excited. And <laughs> noticed I called it fishing and not catching. <laughs> and that was certainly the case that day. You might know that the North Platte is a blue ribbon trout stream. Are you familiar with that term? Meaning that there are upwards to 5,000 fish per mile. That's how a stream gets, gets tagged as blue ribbon. All right, 5,000 fish for a while. Now, this is mostly embarrassing, but I'm going to confess that after floating eight miles on that river, we did not catch a single fish. <laughs> now I know you've already done the math in your head, and you're thinking, how in the world, Pastor, did you float past 40,000 fish? Just stop for a second. <laughs> how did you float past 40,000 fish? and not catch a single one. Well, if you're asking that, you'll be comforted to know that we were asking the same question. About three hours in, we thought maybe all the fish had migrated <laughs> to somewhere else. But the answer to the question is quite simple. In the world of fishing, when a fisherman has a bad day, we just say, that's why they call it fishing and not catching. <laughs> but notice what Jesus said there in verse 4. He did not say, put out into the deep and let down your nets for some fishing. He did not say that, did he? He said, let down your nets for a catch. Although the text does not reveal whether the fish were created at that moment, maybe like the, the fish and loaves moment, or commanded to be there at that moment, what we do know is that Jesus knew that the disciples would be catching and not fishing. Now, take note of verse 5 and Simon Peter's use of the word master. As Jesus moves from master to Lord in, in Peter's mind and heart, and in this scene, Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. <laughs> I can really identify with that. It was about a 10-hour float, not a fish. The Greek word behind our word master is the word epistates. And it is used in the Greek Old Testament in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, where the Egyptians were worried uh, that the growing number of Israelites, remember, would overcome them and that, that they would then uh, partner up with, uh, with all of those uh, uh, enemies of Egypt and that they would overcome them. So they appointed there in Exodus 1.11, uh, so they appointed taskmasters. There's the word in Greek, epistates, over them to afflict them with hard labor. Or in Exodus 5.14, moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had been set over them were beaten. So it is, beloved, Peter uses this word epistates, master, or we could even make it more harsh, taskmaster, saying, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. I think that's the attitude of it. Love Peter, right? A study into Peter's life, I think, is so helpful for us. He, he lives out his life kind of very bombastically through his words. And I'm grateful for that because I'm, I'm convinced that every little thing that Peter did, you and I will do at some point in our life. 
And at some point in your life, you've been frustrated with the Lord and you've been wondering what's going on and you've followed Him and you left everything and you're out of money and you've got no food and you just want to get back to fishing and make a little money (laughs) and you fish all night long. And Jesus, the carpenter, comes along teaching people about the kingdom of heaven. can imagine Peter, right? Whatever you'd like, taskmaster, we'll put out for a catch. Catch the tone here and do not forget the context. The context is that Jesus is a carpenter, not a fisherman. Furthermore, the type of nets here, diktoun in the Greek, are not the type of nets one uses during the daytime. Something Peter is quite aware of is, is, is the profession of fishing and what kind of nets you use at what kind of day. As a matter of fact, the kind of net that Peter was using the last time, Jesus, that we studied him walking by when he called was not this diktoun, but an amphib lestron. That is a daytime net that he was casting. And, and so no doubt, uh, Jesus is saying, let down that dick tune. And in Peter's mind, tired from all night, he just cleaned these nets. <laughs> Jesus says, let down the wrong nets at the wrong time of day. Let them down for a catch. In effect, it seems as if Simon is revealing a little attitude here, doesn't it? Effectively saying, we fishermen know what we're doing. We worked hard all night. You don't catch fish in the middle of the day. And if you do, you certainly do not do it way out here and with this kind of dictune or net. Furthermore, don't you know, you taskmaster, that we just finished cleaning these things? Don't we get that attitude with the Lord sometimes? Ah, Lord. (laughs) Another person to feed, another thing to do. Don't you know, Lord, I do all this work and nobody cares anyway. Unless we get lost in this story and think there is no application for us, let us ask ourselves how many times we do go about our own daily professional business thinking Jesus has no business in interrupting us. Effectively, we far too often have the same attitude as Peter thinking, what could Jesus know about my profession? Doesn't he know that I have degrees and years of experience? Isn't he just a carpenter? Who is this taskmaster telling me how to act in a world of heathens? How many of you know, despite our attitudes, that Jesus is in the business of making what seems impossible to come to pass? And why? So that we are humbled, and he is rightly revealed and exalted as God. I often think of this, and sometimes I read stuff by Charles Spurgeon and other great preachers who taught preachers, and, and they'll often say things like, you know, if you're not gifted in speaking, if you don't have a loud enough voice, especially back in then, and, and uh, um, you're not bold enough, and all these things, all these natural gifts, if you don't have all those things, don't sign up for preaching. Don't sign up for pastoring. Well, that used to kind of convict me and make me feel bad. I, when you ask me, I'll tell you, I really don't like talking. I certainly really don't like being in front of people. 
I don't have a great voice. I'm not a very charismatic speaker, and I, I just would rather go fishing than preach this morning. But what I found is I don't think that that's right. <laughs> it's in our weakness that Christ makes himself strong. It's in our inabilities that Christ shows himself mighty. It's in our sin, our struggles, our, our downtroddenness, our we can't do it on our own, that Christ comes along and we say to him, don't you know, I've got all this figured out. <laughs> and he says, let down your nets for a catch. It humbles us. It keeps us where we belong, right? When we turn around and we see the amazing catches we're getting ready to, we, we don't go, how awesome am I, right? <laughs> We immediately think, oh Lord, forgive me. And that's what's getting ready to happen. God in Jesus is getting ready to show these disciples his eternal nature as God and, and his access to the divine power. Notice there in verse 6, when he had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. And that is when they cast those wrong nets at the wrong time of day, after they had just cleaned them, after they knew there was no fish out there. So they signaled, verse 7, to their partners in the other boat and for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, friends, I don't know what you call a payday, but this catch will no doubt provide for these fishermen for a long time. I don't know exactly the things that Peter is struggling with or the other four how much they've been missing money, how much, however long, if you can imagine following Jesus to become a fisher of man, uh, of men, and you have a family, and your family has a fishing business, and they, they, they rely on you, right, to uh, do the work. And I'm sure at some point in time, as they're out preaching, and people are either hating them or loving them, uh, they're getting tired, and, and they're thinking back about home, right, and, and how they need to get back, and they need to, and they need to provide, I'm sure they're thinking about all those things. And not having anything and not having enough and being frustrated with not taking anything to the market for the morning. I don't want this narrative to fall on deaf ears. Don't fall asleep forgetting the purpose of a sermon. Please hear this. When we are obedient to the Lord and His Word, even when our hearts are wicked and sinful, there is blessing to be found in obedience. There's blessing to be found in obedience. I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel that says, well, if you do this, you're going to get something. This is, the, listen, we take up the heart of Habakkuk and we say, if there is no figs on the tree and if there is no bleeding of sheep in the stalls, yet I will praise the Lord, right? That's our attitude of worship, of life. We don't deserve a thing, but, but yet when there's obedience in our life and Jesus does something and God does something when we couldn't see it, right? We look back and it's like, whoa, that was God, not me. That was God. Maybe while they were on the preaching tutor, tour, Peter was constantly worried about providing for his family. Maybe in that horrific frustration of being gone for a month or more and then coming home and going through a long night of fishing but not catching, he had enough of following Jesus. <laughs> Maybe he did. 
In these circumstances, he was no doubt tired, frustrated, and ready to go home after cleaning the nets. Maybe he even used the word master or taskmaster in his heart, right? You can do this. Sometimes you can say, I love you, and, and look at your wife, and after she's done something for the 400th time that you hate, and you say, I love you, right? But inside, it's nothing but hate. Maybe that's how he said, master. We just don't know. However, I do believe that you and I can identify with this struggle, can't we? But what is so noble about the man Peter is that like you and I, who at times become deeply frustrated in our walk with the Lord, Peter found the will to be obedient to Jesus' word. And here, even in his sin, he experienced, just like you and I can, the mercy and forgiveness of God. You see, Jesus would have known how he said master or taskmaster, whatever the tone was. No doubt Jesus had uh, impeccable discernment and knew that Peter was not going to want to put out and put those nets down after he just cleaned them and caught nothing. You see, friends, when Peter saw Jesus for who he truly was in Peter's mind and heart, Jesus went from taskmaster to Lord, from following the boss, to serving God, from a teacher to follow to the God of the universe, deserving worship. You see, Jesus went from master to Lord in that moment. Verse 10 says that Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on, you will be catching men. You see, beloved, Jesus knew of Peter's proclivity for sin, just like he knows ours, but he called him nonetheless, just like he's calling us. And he did not give up on Peter, and he is not giving up on us, and he will not give up on anyone in whom he calls and brings in. Earlier in the Gospels, Jesus had promised to make Peter a fisher of men, and now, after months of training, Peter has graduated he has gone from a fisherman to one who will now be catching people for eternity. Amen? Let me ask you, are you tired? Are you confused? Are you frustrated? Are you viewing your relationship with God like some sort of taskmaster where you have got to come to church and you just have to check off the box if I made it to church because mom or dad told me to or I made it to church just because I know that's what I'm supposed to do? Have you been fighting the Lord in something that you know that he would have you to be doing? Specifically, in this particular case, uh, Peter is no doubt wrestling with the idea of, do I just go back to work and make money, or should I follow the Lord? I'm out of money. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been called to preach or pastor or be a missionary. And you're thinking, how would I do that? I have too many kids. I don't have enough money. Oh, come on out here and cast that net. Let it down for a catch. In that weakness, in your weakness, in my weakness, Christ will make himself strong. Amen? That's what he does. That's the place you want to be. 
If you think you got it all figured out and you're going to have enough money in the bank and, you, and, and no problem for you, <laughs> well, Christ won't have a place to be strong, will he? He's looking for the weak. Let me encourage you to find your strength if any of those things are you. And like Peter, to be obedient to the Lord and do not worry about your life. Jesus said of all those he called in Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 and 34, he, he brings a, a short parable of the wedding feast of the people he's calling into the kingdom to close. And he, and he says to them at the beginning, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. The Gentiles worry about these things. He sums it all up in verse 33 and 34, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Beloved, today's text reminds us that Christ does the calling. It's Christ who reveals himself to us, and it's Christ who provides for the way forward. Amen? Let's pray.